Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Uh, good morning and welcome. I'm Justin. I'm the campus pastor at Damascus Road West. And uh, Shannon and I are switching it up today. Um, we are going to be switching up uh, from time to time as Shannon tries to get to know the West congregation and spends time they're building relationships, and um, I get to be here and uh, continue to build relationships here um, at the Park Street location, and it is, it is great to be here. This is my first time um, in the Park Street location as the church. I was here when we were first looking at it, and it looked nothing like this at all, and so um, everyone that has uh, put their time and effort in to uh, make this place what it is, we thank you, and um, we're just so glad that, that God has provided a church for us here in a new location, in a new community, and um, So as we are going through the book of James, last week we talked about the idea that faith does something, Um, that faith um, isn't just something that we hear and we sit in our seats and we nod our heads and say, oh, that's great, and we go out the door and we go on our merry way. And last week as a church, um, as we heard about the refugee crisis breaking out um, across Eastern Europe, we said, we as a church, we have to do something. If we're going to be a church that that is about doing, and it's about living out our faith, we need to do something. And so the elders came together last Sunday, and we, we said that we're in the middle of, of dreaming up something, that we could do something to help the refugee crisis. And so we knew that the need was immediate, and we had a relationship in uh, the country of Hungary, and that relationship um, is with a man named Alan Lake and his family, and he has planted a church in Hungary. He's been in Hungary for um, a while, and um, it's called Eastern Harvest is the name of his ministry, and he's helping the refugees cross over into Hungary. And Hungary is one of the first countries that people are coming to um, from Syria as they flee for their lives um, from this um, horrific war that is just destroying their country. And so they're coming into Hungary, and they need food, they need blankets, they need water, and we have this relationship with Alan. And so last week, the church decided, you know what, we're going to cut a check for $5,000 and send it immediately to Alan. Alan has received that. They've already started to put that money into practice. They've started to buy um, clothes and blankets and tents and food and water uh, for the refugees. And so we did that. We just said, we need to meet this need. It needs to be immediate. And so we did it. We did that also from a place of, um, as you may know, or maybe you don't know, um, each quarter, Damascus Road gives out 11% of whatever comes in. And so whatever you guys give over the quarter, we give away 11% of that. We just say off the top, even if we don't have to power the lights, if we can't power the lights, it doesn't, we're going without lights because we're giving the 11% away. We're, we're saying God has called us to this, and so we're giving it away. We're, that $5,000 was not a part of that 11%. That $5,000 was on top of the 11% that we're going to give away at the end of this quarter. And so know that, that we are stepping out in faith as a church. We saw this, this need, and we said we are going to act in faith. We're not going to do something that's comfortable and say we're, we'll just use our 11% that that we normally give away uh, to our local community, that we'll just take it away from our local community and give it uh, to the world. We say, no, we're going to do this on top 
of that. And so we gave on top of the 11% that we'll give away. And that 11% is still going to happen. It's still going to go to our local community here uh, where the gospel can be spread in Madison, where we're at. And so the thing that we are inviting you guys to do now, this week, from this week to next week, is for you to be involved in this as well. Because, yes, as a leadership, we, we made the decision. We said $5,000, here we go, we're doing it. But the thing that we want to do is we want to invite you into this place of also faith doing. And so we want to ask you to pray this week that God would move in your heart. In what ways can you give to the refugee crisis and help out um, here in Hungary? Because the need in Hungary is getting even more immediate. Because what's happening is that uh, <coughs> European law is that as soon as a refugee hits soil on, on the European side, they must register the refugee in that country, and that country has, is now responsible for that refugee. And what had been happening up until this point is that refugees were just filing through Hungary. They were making their way. The, the ultimate goal for many refugees was Germany. Um, but you can't get to Germany without going through another European country. And so Hungary was just kind of like turning a blind eye. They're like, we'll give you food, supplies, You'll make it to Germany. We'll help you get there. Um, but what's happening now is that the, the EU is breaking down and they're putting pressure on the Hungarian government. And the Hungarian government is folding and they're saying, okay, we have to start registering these refugees. And so when those refugees hit Hungary, they stop. And so what's going to happen is that the buildup of refugees isn't going to happen in Germany. It isn't going to happen in more of the Western European countries. But that buildup is just going to happen right there in Hungary, right there on the front lines. And so the need in Hungary is even far greater. It's going to be even more greater as time goes on. And so what we're going to ask you guys to do as a congregation is to step up and be involved in uh, what we're doing in Hungary and with this refugee crisis. And so we want to ask you to pray to give uh, to the refugees and to this to this thing, the way that you're going to be able to give is to um, on your check, on your envelope that you might put cash in. Um, is that we just want you to make some type of designation, say Syria, say refugee, and put it into the box there. And so, if you feel so compelled um, today, if, as you're walking out to write a check for the refugee crisis, go ahead, drop it in the box. Um, know that next week we're going to be taking collection. You can just put it. In the bucket, as it passes, the boxes will be there. Um, just make that designation to Syria. Now, the thing that we do want to encourage you to do is that this gift be a sacrificial gift. That it be a gift that, that comes on top of your already budgeted and already scheduled um, tithe and offerings to the church. Because we as a church stepped out in faith and we were like, you know, we're going to still take care of our community. We're still going to take care of the people that we love and that we see and that we have relationships around us. Um, but we want to do this extra thing, and so we're going to make a sacrifice. And we just want to call you and ask you guys um, if you'd come beside us and do the same thing. If you'd consider still giving, still tithing to the church, still tithing to the local body so you can meet the local needs of the people that you see around you each and every day. But then you could also give on top of that and say, you know what, um, I don't know where um, this $100 is going to come from, but here's $100 to the refugee crisis. And, and man, I, I hope that God provides this week. And what an amazing step of faith to say, you know what, I'm a hearer of the word, I'm going to be a doer of the word, and I'm going to trust God in ways that are incredibly uncomfortable this week. Um, because maybe that $100 is what you had planned for groceries, or maybe that $100 is what you planned to make rent. You know? And I, I'm not saying make, you know, put yourself in that type of jeopardy, but I'm saying test God, test God in this. The Bible, His word says, test Him in this, test Him in this, and He will not let you down. He will not fail you. And so I guarantee you that there's room, that there's place 
in your budget that you could go um, without um, your Starbucks this week um, so that refugees could have some clothes and some water and some blankets. So we have some pictures. Dave, if you want to throw up the pictures here. So here we're, they're handing out food um, already. Here's some bean soup, looks like being passed out. Um, this is from Alan. This is from Alan. This is from the place that we sent the money to. Um, next page. Um, this is where they're kind of camped out. As you can see, they've got a, a row of tents, but you can see that the amount of tents that they have are just not adequate. And there's people sleeping out there, resting there, kind of camping out, um, just just out in the in the open air. And I don't know about you. I don't know if any of you have camped this summer, if any of you have ever attempted to, to sleep outside, but it, um, it gets cold at night. You get a little phlegm in your throat. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable to be outside. Um, Next picture. All right, so here we're, we're on the train tracks. They're, they're in the middle of commuting. They're, they're in the middle of walking. They're walking thousands, thousands of miles. Uh, if they had a Fitbit, they would, like, meet their goal big time. But anyways, what, what we have here is that we see this refugee here. He's got, and he got like, a shoulder bag on. He's got, kind of got a cell phone. He's got a Puma backpack. And, you know, I think sometimes we see these pictures of, of refugees, and we're like, this guy looks like he's doing all right. Like, he's got a cell phone. He's got his Puma backpack. Like, he's looking pretty metro. Like, I mean, he's looking good. And in our hearts, we look at these pictures, and we say, well, it doesn't look like he needs my help that bad. Like, he's got a cell phone. He's got a Puma backpack. Like, I don't have a Puma backpack. I can barely make my cell phone bill this month. Like, I don't know. I don't know if he actually deserves my money. But the, but the reality is, is that, like, this guy, that's all he's got. That's all he's got is his cell phone and his Puma backpack. And these people led normal Western lives until the war came in and destroyed them and uprooted them. And so think about yourself. Think about yourself in this situation. If there were to be a war to break out, what would you grab? What would you take with you? You take your best jeans because they would last. You take your best shirt because it's going to last. You take your cell phone because it's your photo album. And that, those are the things that you take. These are the things that you take with you when you know that there might not be a home standing left. And so this guy, don't let your heart be deceived. Don't let your heart be deceived this morning and say, man, I don't know if these guys really need help. These guys need help in a big way. And how awesome would it be for us, a small church in Madison, to be able to send, to double that gift. That's our goal. That's our goal is to be able to take that $5,000 and easily double it to $10,000 and just think about the amazing impact that that would make, how many meals that would serve. That would be huge. That would be huge. And so we just want to encourage you guys this morning with what we're doing as a church, and we want to invite you to be a part of that. And so like I said, if you want to give and you want to give today, go ahead and put it in the box. Just designate Refugee Syria. Um, We're going to pass the buckets next week. Pray to God in which ways that you can make a sacrifice that might be incredibly uncomfortable um, and be able to give that on top of your normal tithe and offering. And so um, with that, I want to transition next into our series of James, um, and just kind of give us a little bit of review. We just finished chapter one, and um, chapter one was great. It took us four weeks to get through, but there's a lot of wisdom that happened in chapter one. And when I teach the book of James to my students at his house, um, one of my students made the apt observation of saying, when you read James, it feels like James is saying, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. And that's, that's the, I was like, I don't think I could have said it any better. That as you read James, he's saying you need to check yourself 
before you wreck yourself. And so when we look at chapter 1, we see trials come up, and trials come up in our life, and James says, check yourself and seek wisdom. Seek wisdom. Don't wreck yourself. We see temptations come up in our lives, and he says, check yourself. Don't blame God. Don't blame your circumstances. Check yourself. Know that your heart is where those temptations are coming from, that your heart is deceitful. And then finally, last week we heard, don't just be hearers of the word. Check yourself. Put those words into action. Put those words into action. And so as we go into chapter 2, it would be no surprise that this week we're also going to hear James kind of say, check yourself. He's going to say, if you find yourself judging your neighbor, you need to check yourself and you need to show mercy. You need to show mercy and you need to show grace. And I want to give you this disclosure as we move forward is that every time we read something or we get to a place where something checks our heart, where it confronts our heart, um, a lot of times we want to deflect that and we want to say, man, I wish so-and-so was here to hear that. I wish somebody that could really have heard that word today and that, that would have been good because I know that person's really judgmental and it would just be really, they, they just needed to hear that. They just needed to hear that this morning. But that's what we do. That's what we do. Every time these things come to check our heart, it's offensive to us. And that's why James says we have to be slow to anger and we have to be quick to listen and slow to speak. And so I just want to say this morning is that this morning I want us to be able to come face to face with our brokenness and to be able to, instead of deflect that onto other people, be able to turn to the one that is able to heal us the one that's able to free us, the one that's able to make us new. And that's what James is hoping. And so if you guys would stand, we're going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And it says this, it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in the good place, well, you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? which has been promised to those who love him. But have you dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich ones, the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name in which you were called? If, you've already, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing a sin, and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point becomes accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty, for judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, I just thank you for this day, and I thank you for this time that we can come together and hear your word, and for your word to, to hit us directly and correct us, and for us to, to walk away change, for us to walk away um, with you and your truth in our mind, 
in us with a prayer that says, God, let me be merciful to my neighbor. Let me show grace to my neighbor. God, transform my heart in the ways that it is bitter towards my neighbor. God, I just pray that you'd begin to transform us here this morning, that you would make us into a new creation, and that we would be able to come to you with our brokenness, and that you would be able to let us walk away healed. We love you, God, and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So this morning in the book of James, what we find is that James is giving the hearer a correction. And I don't know about you, but I hate being corrected. Um, and my wife is good at it. My wife is good at, at offering me correction. Um, and yeah, I'm surprised there's only one laugh. I mean, I thought there'd be like a resounding, like, I feel you. <laughs> but, but my wife, when she corrects me, um, it, looks, it looks a little bit like this. She likes to correct my speech. Um, so there's, there's times where I will say, the car looks like it needs washed. Or I'll say, the car, the lawn needs mowed. I think the lawn needs mowed. And she likes to correct my speech because if, you, if you're listening carefully, I'm leaving out, like, I think it's a linking verb, and it's called, it's, it's to be. It's the words to be. It's the, she's like, and she'll correct me. She'll be like, no, she's like, the car needs to be washed. She's like, the lawn needs to be mowed. I'm like, ah, you're right. The car needs washed. And the lawn needs mowed. <laughs> and we go back and forth, and she's like, someday I, you're going to get it. Someday you're going to get it that the words to be needs to be there. She's like, and the reason why I'm correcting you, she's like, the reason why I'm correcting you is not for you to feel foolish, for you to feel dumb. And I'm not going to lie. When it happens, when I say something like that, she's like, you mean to be? I'll be like, oh, to be, to be. Like, it offends my pride. It offends, um, because when I grew up, when I grew up in small, rural, um, can't even say rural correctly, um, <laughs> Michigan, um, that's how we talked. We, we did not put the words to be in the sentences, but my wife was like, Justin, she's like, I'm not here to make you uh, feel foolish, to feel dumb, but I'm here to, to correct you so that when you get up in a group of people like this, you don't say something foolish like the car needs washed when like the car needs to be washed. She's like, when you say the car needs washed, she's like, it sounds like you just walked out of the backwoods. She's like, you don't sound educated, you don't sound smart, you don't sound like somebody that has any type of credibility. And so she corrects me in private because not to make me feel foolish, but to prevent me from looking foolish. And that's the heart of correction. That is the heart of true correction. Because I think oftentimes that when we're corrected, we're just like, ah, are you serious? Are you serious? But really, the heart of correction is that it's there to prevent us from looking foolish in front of people. And that's the heart of James, is that James is saying, hey, I'm here to correct you this morning. Not to make you feel foolish, not to make you feel dumb, but to, to prevent you from looking foolish and dumb um, when it counts, when it matters. And the, the reality is, is that sometimes we need to be corrected in places where we're not even aware of. Before I met Rebecca, I had no idea that I left the words to be out of, out of sentences. I had no idea. But she made it very clear and very prominent, and I'm thankful for it. And up until this reading of James and thinking through this illustration, like, I was pretty firm, like I had my foot down, like, I will put to be in if I want to or not. But after reading James and seeing like, 
the heart of my wife in this. I'm just like, all right, I need to start making an effort to put 2B in because she's got my best interest in mind. She's got my best interest in mind. And so does James here this morning. He's got our best interest in mind. And so let's listen to his correction. And his correction comes in verse 1 of chapter 2. And it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Do not show partiality. Do not show favoritism. Do not give somebody um, one type of service and another person another type of service just by the way they look, by the way they act, by the things that they believe. Show no partiality as Christians, as those who believe in God. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I was just like, you know what, this, this isn't that bad because we live in Madison, one of the most accepting, one of the most free, one of the most tolerant cities in America, am I right? Like, we don't have a problem with prejudicism or tolerance, or any, like, right? Like, we have no problem with this. <laughs> yeah, no, I know, I know. No, we have a problem with this. We have a big problem with this. And probably the biggest problem that we have with this is that um, at times we walk around saying that we don't. We walk around saying we don't have a problem with prejudice. We are a tolerant city. We don't have a problem here. We don't need James's correction because we've, we've been there, done that, got it done. We're good but the reality is that we, we are all prejudiced in our own heart. We all show partiality. We all have a group of people that we feel more comfortable around than others. And we all have a group of people that we feel way more uncomfortable around than we do with others. And we tend to make sure that our time is spent with those that we feel comfortable around. And we try and avoid the people that make us feel uncomfortable um, and that's the way we spend our time, and we're going to talk about the consequences of that. And so this morning, the what is, if you're taking notes, the big what is, do not show partiality. And then we're going to get into the why, and we're going to get into the consequences of that. So if you're taking notes, that's kind of the, where we're going to go this morning. The what, the why, and the consequences. And so this what is, is don't show um, partiality. Don't have prejudices. And we've already here, we're into the first verse, and we admit we do that. We, we violate that command. We violate that correction in our own hearts daily. And uh, James goes on to say, he says, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place. Well, you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. You have, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. I want to go back to that last question that James asks his listeners. He says, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And our answer should be a resounding yes. We have become judges. And when we become judges, our judgment can only be from a place of evil intention, of subjectivity, of something that makes me feel comfortable, of the thing that... that the thing that affirms me the most. And the reason why our judgments, when we look at other people, are from this place of evil is because when we make judgments on other people, we have only ourselves in mind. We have only ourselves in mind. We like to worship ourselves. We like to think of ourselves as most right. And so every time we make a judgment, we think we're making the best judgment. I've never met somebody that made a judgment about something or had an opinion about something and thought they had the wrong opinion. Because we think that we're right. 
And the reason why we make these opinions and the reasons why we make these judgments is because we're so highly and incredibly insecure. We are so insecure. We are, terif- we are if we're honest, we're completely terrified about how insecure we really are. And the best way to make ourselves feel secure is to make judgments on other people to where you say, well, at least I'm not like them, and at least I'm not like them. And, you know, hey, here's some people that believe what I believe, who think like I do. Hey, we're the sane ones in the room. Like, and then we build small communities around these opinions that do only one thing but worship ourselves and affirm ourselves and our insecurity. And so we do this because we place people above us, we place people at our level, we place people below us. And when we judge people that, are, that we deem below us, and we've all done this, we've all put people below us, I think this, we do this every day, we put people below us, oftentimes we gawk, we laugh, we whisper, and, uh, and we do this with people that are at our level, people that, that we know that we can like, gawk, whisper, and laugh with, because like, no one wants to like, tell a joke and laugh alone, and so we make sure that there's people on our level around, and we say, like, can you believe that? Can you, did you see that? And I'm guilty of this, I'm guilty of this. Just yesterday, my wife and I, we were going out uh, to get some ice cream, we were at the chocolate factory... Awesome ice cream in Madison, if you've never been. Um, probably some of the best. That's just my judgment. Um, and if you're like, woo, like, then you just affirmed me. Um, but anyways, we were at the chocolate shop getting ice cream. It's by the bike path. And this guy in a hand-knit sweater that he probably made himself um, in a man bun and a fixed-gear bike goes, like, riding by. And I, like, told my wife, I was like, did you see that guy? Like... Um, and I did that to, to, to affirm myself. And only one way to just say, like, man, I'm glad I'm not like him. Like, I don't need to hand knit my clothes. And, man, I, like, that, that man bone, that looked really foolish. Um, like, that's a terrible style choice. And, you know, he's on, a, he's on a fixed gear, so, like, he's working extra hard to slow down. And, I mean, just, you know, I'm making all of these judgments about this guy that I don't even know. I don't even know this guy. Like, this guy just innocently rode by on his bicycle, and I made boom, boom, boom. I just made five judgments about who he is. And we're guilty of this. We do this all the time. And we turn to somebody. You know, it just so happened that my wife was there, but any one of my friends could have been there. I could have probably said the same thing. They would have been like, oh, yeah. And then they just would have affirmed me and all my beliefs, and they would have been like, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think we should cut man buttons, you know? I mean, like... <laughs> no. And man, it feels good. It feels good to feel morally superior. It feels good to feel culturally superior. It, feel, it just feels good to feel superior. Just feel like, I'm better than you. And that feels good. It feels good in our heart. And you know it because we do it every day, and you're like, you know what? It does, it does. And when we do these things, we worship our insecure self. That's what we're doing. We're worshiping our insecure self. And we're praying a prayer that the Pharisees prayed in Luke that says, God, thank you that you did not make me like them. And so I want to read this passage in Luke. It's on the screen. It should be on the screen coming up. It's from Luke 18. And Jesus is talking. And Jesus says, There's a Pharisee standing by himself, and he prayed this. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, 
the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterous, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you this. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so when we make these judgments, we're like the Pharisee. We're like the Pharisee that says, God, thank you that, I did, that you did not make me like those people. Thank you that you did not make me like those people. And then there's people that are above us. There are people that we judge that are above us. Um, because I think we all look around and we're like, yep, I know that there's some people above us. And there's two ways that we judge those people. The first way that we judge the people above us is that we're, we're like, we praise them and we put them on a pedestal and we say, we want to be like them. We say, man, they've really got it going on. Uh, maybe it's your boss at work. Maybe it's somebody else at work that you're like, man, it'd be really great to have their job. It'd be really great to have their skills. Um, it'd be really great to get in close with them. Maybe if I got close enough to them, they would start giving me favors. Maybe they would start um, showing some special attention to me. Maybe they'd be able to build into me and allow me to get what I want. And so we look at people above us and we say, man, maybe this person that's really great, maybe we can leverage them. Maybe we can use their, their place above us to, to make us more like them so that we can climb the ladder and be like them. And we look at these people that are above us and we say, man, I really want to be like them. I really want to strive after what they have. But the real reason in our heart that we want to be like them and that we want to be is that we, we understand that we're below them. And we understand that once we get to their level, there'll be more people below us. And there'll be fewer people above us. And so we get close. We get close to the people that are above us. And we're even willing to sell out. We're even willing to sell out to get to the people that we judge as above us to become like them. And we see this in James. Is this not what James is doing? The rich people come in to the church. And the church says to the rich people, Here, have the best seats. Have the best coffee. Have the best bagels. Poor people, you sit over here. If there's any left over, you might be able to have some of those. But you see, the church is a place, the church is a place that was made for the poor. It was made to serve the poor. It was made to serve the sick. It was made to serve the ill. It was made to serve the needy. It was made to, to put them first. But the church, looking at the rich around them and saying, they have something that we want, we're, we're going to accommodate them and we're going to sell out our identity to be like them. And we're going to start serving them and we're going to put the poor to the side. They're going to set aside the identity in which we're called. And I think that we do this on a daily basis. We do this all the time and we look up and we say, man, it'd be great to have more people underneath me and I'm just going to sell out. I'm going to sell out to the, you know, God has called me to do this thing, but I think I have better plans and so I'm going to sell out to them. And the reason why we sell out to them is also just so that we can feel affirmed again. That we can feel affirmed once more. I mean, if you were a, just a standard graphic artist, let's just say you're a graphic artist, that's your, your jobby, maybe, maybe it's your hob, it's your job, it's your hobby, and, um, and you know, if somebody, if just Joe Blow on the street comes by and says, like, man, that's, that's great artwork, like, you're like, yeah, yeah, it is good artwork. But just 
Just imagine if Tim Cook, CEO of Apple, walked up and was like, that's some good artwork. You'd be like, oh, man, Tim Cook says it's, it's good. I'm good. I'm going to start charging people more because Tim Cook said that I'm good. And immediately we get to this place of we want others that are above us to affirm us so that we can think that we're better than what we really are. Because at the end of the day, artwork, I don't want to say that artwork is just artwork because it's all subjective, but, I mean, there's, there's a place where, like, Apple's made some things that I don't think are as, as incredibly beautiful um, that some people would be like, and I love Apple, I love Apple, but there's some things where, like, you know, I know some local designers that could do a far better job than Apple. And so, you see, we, we put these places in our mind that we judge those that are better so that we can, one, attain their level, two, so we can put more people under us, and three, so that we can feel more affirmed. But we also judge the rich in the opposite way. So there's the judgment that says, rich, I want to be like you, or people that I view above you, I want to be like you. But then there's the opposite perspective that comes with a little bit of, of criticism and a little bit of, of, of mistrust. And it says, I see you people above me, and I see the way that you oppress those around me, and I see the way that you look down at me and the way that you judge me that's below me, and I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with Actually, I'm going to rally against you. I'm going to work as hard as I can to fight against the oppressive powers that you have that is above me. And anything that I can do to undercut you, I will do because I'm so angry, I'm so frustrated, and I'm so hurt by the oppression and the judgment that people above me have that they're placing down on me. And so I'm not going to sit here and take it anymore, but I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. And I, and I think that when we do that, we are praying the same prayer as the Pharisee that's standing there in the synagogue that says, God, thank you for not making me like them. Thank you, God, for not making me like the oppressors. Thank you, God, for making me more righteous than them. You see, there's a story in the Bible that there was this woman that was so poor, she only had two coins. She goes up to the giving, and she gives the two coins, and Jesus says that she's blessed because she gave out of her poverty. But what would that story look like if that woman came with her two coins and she dropped it in the box, and then she looked over at the Pharisees and she's like, yep, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad that I'm giving out of my poverty instead of out of my wealth. I'm glad that I'm giving righteously before God. And she kind of walks away. I think God would have harsh words for that woman as well. Because at the end of the day, we make judgments. And in these judgments, we say, I'm just glad I'm not like them. And we feel affirmed. We feel affirmed again. So just in the same way you judge those that are above you to seek affirmation and say, man, you do really good work. The same way that you judge them and say, man, you're oppressive, you're evil, I'm ready to undercut you. Again, you're, you're trying to feed yourself. You're trying to worship yourself and say, I'm right. I'm self-righteous. I'm good. You're wrong. Let's go on our merry way. And so what happens is that we end up as a society that seeks tolerance. Because we understand. We understand that, that there are people that are different than us, that there are people that um, believe differently than us, and that we have to live together on this planet. And so we look for something that allows us to coexist together, and that idea is tolerance. 
And we even see tolerance being played out here in James. As I said, they brought the rich in, they served them the good food, and they, the poor were still there. They didn't like kick the poor out. They did not, not tolerate the poor, but they're like, we will tolerate the poor and you can sit over here. See, at the core of tolerance is this idea of, I'm going to tolerate this. But no, at the end of the day, no one wants to be tolerated. I don't want to be tolerated. You don't want to be tolerated. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. We want to be cared for. We want to be affirmed. And really, tolerance is the world's broken way of, of, of achieving for grace. But it's a broken form of grace. This is something that Tim Dunn would say all the time. It's just that, that tolerance is the world's broken way of, of seeking for grace. And what we don't need in this society is more tolerance. But what we need in this society is more grace. We need more grace. We need more grace to where when we look at people and we say... I don't understand the circumstances that you have. I don't understand the circumstances that you are from. And, but man, I'm here to love you. I'm here to show you grace. I'm here to treat you as a person. I'm here to love you as a neighbor. And I think the hardest thing, the most difficult thing about tolerance is that tolerance acknowledges that, unju- that injustice exists, but it refuses to do anything about it. When you tolerate something, you you acknowledge the injustice, but at the same time you say, I'm not going to do anything about that injustice, and you walk away, and you walk away. And so James continues correcting our hearts and reminding us this, he says in verse 5, he says, Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to become rich and to be heirs of the kingdom, which has promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Are they not the ones dragging you into the courts? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? And because our hearts are evil, when we make these judgments, there are two things that happen. Two things that happen when we make these evil judgments is that, number one, we dishonor God. And number two, we foolishly and completely misunderstand and misrepresent the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we make judgments with evil intent in our heart, we dishonor God and we misrepresent and we misunderstand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's talk about the first one first, how we dishonor God in our judgments. The first way that we dishonor God in our judgments is that when we make distinctions, we create ourselves to be a mini-deity. We say, I'm going to say this is right and this is wrong. And we, we say, I am God in this picture this is right, this is wrong. And our judgments end up causing a separation in relationship. I think this is the core of, of our judgments. Like, if you don't take anything away, take this away. Our judgments cause separation in relationships. Our judgments destroy relationships, and oftentimes it destroys the relationship before it even has an attempt of being formed. It will destroy a relationship before it even has a chance of being formed. For example, the man on the fixed-geared sweater, man-bun bicycle, I looked at him, and in no way would I ever talk to him. Like, in my heart, no way would I, like, say hi, wave, smile. Like, I looked at him, judged him, it was over. There was no chance of relationship. And I think that that's what happens when we make judgments, is that we look at people and we say, uh, I don't like what you're wearing today. I don't think I'm going to talk to you. I don't like the things that like 
I don't like the bumper stickers that are on your car. And so um, I think when I pass you, I'm going to give you some, some, some sign language. Um, or maybe you might look at... <laughs> these cars are going off. Um, you might also, like, because of people's bumper stickers, judge them and be like, you might get more angry at them because of what they represent. Where if they had no bumper stickers on the car, they're just like, they're just another car in traffic. But because they have a bumper sticker that you disagree with, bam, lack of relationship right now. There's no place of relationship. And this lack of relationship and this lack of communication between parties leads for um, a place of misunderstanding, a place of not knowing, a place where we make false assumptions, and ultimately it ends into a place where there's oftentimes violence and mistrust. Oftentimes when we do not allow a relationship to form because we've made judgment, oftentimes, quickly after, there's some type of violence, whether that violence is in our heart or whether that comes out verbally or whether that comes out in the way we treat them. There's often some form of violence that comes out. And because of that violence, there's often misunderstanding. And normally when we give violence it's only going to beget violence. And that violence and that misunderstanding is going to continue to increase until there is an incredible divide between these relationships. All because you made a judgment in your heart. You made a judgment in your heart that was evil. For no other reason. Wars break out because of this stuff. Cities riot against each other because of this stuff. People are killed because of this stuff, because we don't take time to build a relationship and to get to know one another. And this is dishonorable towards God, who calls us to live at peace with one another. He calls us to live at peace with one another. And, I mean, I think that a lot of this is is stuff that we feel in our workplace, it's stuff that we feel in the city, it's a tension that we feel kind of out there. We come here and we're like, man, we're, we're, we're all somewhat on the same level. We feel like we're on the same level. We're here to worship and listen to God. But there's something that's kind of on my heart. There's, a, there's like a little tension that I felt um, in this church and talking with people, and I'm sure that you've, you've felt it too. And um, it, it comes down to like where we school our kids. Um, there's this conversation going on right now that's just like, well, do you, home, do you homeschool your kids or do you public school your kids? And we end up having these two camps that say, well, I, I take my kid to public school for these reasons. And we have parents that say, well, I homeschool my kids for these reasons. And when it comes to our kids, like, we, we get really protective really fast because none of us want to make the wrong decision for our children. We love our children. And I firmly believe that the parents that choose to homeschool and that can't homeschool are doing it from a place of conviction and a place where, where they believe that they are making the right choice. And there are people that take their kids to public school and they are doing it from conviction or maybe they're doing it from necessity. And they're, 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 they believe that they're making the right choice for their child. But what happens is, is that sometimes we don't communicate across those two worlds. And there becomes this unspoken kind of tension between the two groups. It's like, well, I'm part of the homeschooling group. Well, I'm part of the public schooling group. 
well, I would never let my kid go to Madison Public School. Well, I would, I would never sacrifice my career to stay at home with my kids. And it, it, what ends up happening is that we end up creating two different communities in a community that says that we're one. And we say, God, in some ways we say, man, I'm glad that you haven't made me like the other. And I know I don't have kids yet. I, Rebecca and I haven't decided what we're going to do when we do have kids. Rebecca was homeschooled. I was public school. Rebecca's a public school teacher. There's, like, tension in our relationship around this. Like, um, we, don't, we don't know what's going to happen. But what I'm saying is that, like, in the church body, this, this tension can't exist. This tension, like, needs to be nipped in the bud. Like, we have this, this division between families that is preventing community from happening in this body over something as simple as where your kids go to school. And we create many communities that kind of harbor some bitterness and some anger and some frustration towards one another. And I know because I've talked to both sides. I've had conversations with both sides. And, that, and I, just, I just want to, to, like James, come in and say, I'm, I want to help correct that so we stop looking foolish. I want to correct that so we can bring families together, so we can worship in unity, so that we can begin to honor God. And, and, I, and I pick schooling because it's easy. It's an easy target. Like, but there are multiple things that cause divisions, not only in the community abroad, but in this community right here. And James is saying, stop. James is saying, stop making those judgments. When you feel in your heart to make that judgment, instead of making that judgment and walking away, Start to make, like, you feel that judgment come, turn to that person, begin to have a conversation with them. Not to affirm you, but to, to humble yourself and to listen and to learn and to hear why it is that they homeschool, hear why it is that they public school, why, why their circumstances are, and what are the good things. And, and, and really, public school, pri- uh, private school, homeschooling, like, we all turn out okay. Like, we're all in this room, right? And we all, like, achieved some level of schooling in that way. Like, we... It's okay. Like, we're going to make it. <laughs> and so, I just want to say, like, we need to begin to be able to have these conversations. We need there to be unity where there is currently disunity. The second way that it dishonors God is that it removes the glory of God and puts it onto something else. Remember how this chapter started? It started with the line of, In faith, the Lord of glory. And when we show favoritism and when we make prejudices and we give glory and honor to one thing and we lift it up and we praise it, we're taking that glory and honor and we're shifting it away from God to something less. To something less than God. We're saying this thing is of utmost importance and this thing needs to be worshipped and valued more than God. And when we shift that importance, we're evil and we're broken there is a line that I heard once that said, whatever it is that you are worshiping that is not Jesus is not worthy of your worship. It's not worthy of your worship. And one, it says a lot about who Jesus is, that Jesus demands and is worthy of all of our worship. And two, it, it, it tells us how important our worship is. If Jesus wants our worship, if Jesus is deserving of our worship, then our worship is important and it's value. It's valuable. And where we put it matters. And Jesus is saying, please, bring it to me. Don't put it on something lesser than me. Don't put your focus on something less than me. Don't shift the glory, but bring it to me. 
because I am worthy. It says who we are in light of who God is. And then, at the end of the day, that without the gospel, there will always be someone there that is tolerating you, and you will always have to be there tolerating somebody else. Without the gospel, without Jesus, without giving honor and glory to where it's supposed to be done, whenever we judge, if we continue to live out this life of judgments, we are always going to be in this place where somebody has to tolerate me. Maybe you're tolerating me right now. Or a place where you have to tolerate someone else. And that's no, way, that's no place to live. That's no place to live at all, where we're just tolerating one another. And so the question is, what does the gospel say about all of this? What does the gospel say? And the gospel says that God has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith. The gospel says that you will have nothing to offer to anyone. That's the poor. The poor have nothing to offer to anyone. But yet, in your nothingness, to offer to anyone, you will be rich in faith and you will be heirs to the kingdom of God. It's hard to be prideful when you acknowledge that you have nothing valuable to give. And so if we can humble ourselves and say, I I come to you, God, with nothing to give, with nothing to add to your glory, with nothing to add to your greatness because you are complete and you are good, and we humble ourselves and say, God, we we are here to receive your riches and your grace. He says, I will be rich to you in faith and I will I will make you an heir to my kingdom. But here we spend our time trying to build our own statuses, we try and build our own intellect, we try and build our own kingdoms here in hopes that we might be affirmed. But Jesus says that our affirmation doesn't come through what we can achieve, rather it comes through what I have achieved. It comes through what Jesus has achieved. That's where we're affirmed. So this whole time, if you're at the beginning, if you're like, yeah, the reason why I judge people is because I want to be affirmed, this is the answer. This is where we are affirmed. It is through the work of Jesus Christ that we are affirmed. There's a saying that says, the man with the most toys wins, but in reality, the saying should say, the man with the most toys still dies. The man with the most toys still dies. And we go back to chapter 1 for a minute in James, and it says this. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with his scorching heat, and it will wither the grass. Its flower fails, and its beauty perishes. So will also the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is just saying the same thing, that we are all going to die. The question is, are we going to stop building our own kingdoms? Are we going to stop trying to find affirmation from ourselves and what we can accomplish? Or are we going to humble ourselves and take the affirmation that is only possible through Jesus? The gospel is about admitting our brokenness and it's about admitting our inadequacies. I don't know about you, but that's really hard to do. To admit that I am broken, to admit that I am inadequate. I think one of our biggest fears as people, when I talk to people, is that I'm afraid to, of being inadequate. I want to be adequate. I want to be good enough. I just want to see in someone's eyes that I'm good enough. But the gospel says you have to admit that you're inadequate. And the truth is that we are. The truth is, is that we are. But Jesus is the one who comes and says, in your inadequacy, 
I come in grace and love and power, and I'm the one that makes you adequate. I'm the one that makes you more than adequate. I'm the one that makes you an heir to the kingdom of God. I'm the one that says, even though you have nothing to give anyone else in this life, I will make you a ruler in my kingdom. I will give you a throne. I will give you a crown. And when we come to understand that, when we come to understand that our identity is found in Christ, that our identity is found in what he's done, not in what we're able to accomplish, once we find that our identity is secure as an heir to the throne in the kingdom of God, it becomes very difficult to be offended when you know that your identity is secure and you know who you really are. And when you know who you really are, you know who your identity is, and you know that you're secure in Jesus who has called you and who's made you to be who you are, when you stand confident in that, there's no place, there's no room, there's no need for name-calling. There's no place, there's no need for whispering and telling jokes. There's no need for making divisions because my identity isn't found in how right I am and how good other people think that I am. But my identity is found in Christ who says, in your inadequacy, because of my great son, you are now adequate. And I have a place for you. I have made you adequate. I have made you secure. And when we stand secure in that, there's no need. There's no need for judgment. There's no need to lash out. There's no need to oppress That's what the gospel offers. The gospel offers us a place where we can say no to all of that and we can bend a knee to our neighbor and reach down and pull them up. The people that we saw below us, we can reach down, we we stop making distinction and we just say, man, I see that you're in deep need. We see these people on the screen, we see that they're in deep need and we're able to put aside our judgments that they have a cell phone and a Puma backpack and we're able to bend a knee and say, let me pull you up. Let me pull you up. And James continues to say, he says, if you are ready to fill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, and you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. Forever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, has become accountable to all of it. For he said, do not commit adultery. Also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. The law that James is referring to here comes out of Leviticus 19 that tells us that we shouldn't hate our brother and that we should love our brother instead because he is the Lord. Because he is the Lord. And we need to love our brothers and that we should not take vengeance on our brother, that we should not hold a grudge against our brother. And you see when we make these judgments... Oftentimes we find ourselves in a place of vengeance, a place of holding grudges. But God says, because of the gospel, because I am the Lord, you need to rid yourself of those things. Those places in your heart that warm up inside when you start to feel vengeful, when you start to feel uh, begrudging, you need to let those go. You need to let those go. Because I am the Lord and I have not made you to live that way. And the reality is is that we're guilty. We're guilty of all of it. We're guilty of slandering our neighbor. We're guilty of taking vengeance on our neighbor. We're, We're guilty of holding grudges against our neighbor. 
And the reason why James puts this part in here where like when you break a part of the law that you've broken the whole thing is because there's a temptation in our own heart to say, well, I haven't committed adultery and I haven't murdered our neighbor. So I don't know if holding this grudge or um, taking vengeance on me, I don't, I don't know if that's really sinful. And he's saying, look, just because you didn't commit murder, just because you didn't commit adultery, you are still committing sin. And that it's really impossible to just break one part of the law. If you think about it, when you slander somebody, you covet them, you lie about them, you don't show them honor, you do not show them love, and you do not worship God alone. You make yourself God. So just in one act of slandering, you've broken like five laws. You've sinned five times in, in one sin. And so James says that we're people in need of mercy. We're in people, we're people that is in need of deep mercy. And this is where James leads us next. He says, So speak to one another who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And he says this because we've begun the verse with the assumption that we're the judge. And James is saying, look, you're not the judge. You need to put yourself in the position of the one being judged. You need to acknowledge that God is in the place of judging and that you are the one to being judged. And then he goes on to say, for judgment without mercy to the one who has showed no mercy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And James here is pointing to li- for us to live as Christ. Jesus says that he came into this world not to condemn the world, not to judge the world, but to save it. When Jesus comes in and he chooses his disciples, guess who he chooses? He doesn't choose the rich and the religious elite and the people that would make Jesus look good and affirm him and pat him on the back and be like, Jesus, you're you're such a great guy. He doesn't pick those guys. Instead, Jesus picks the tax collector and he picks a zealot. And a tax collector at one of those times was one of the most liberal forms of Judaism. He'd be like the extreme liberal in our world. And then the zealot would be one of the extreme Jewish conservatives. And Jesus calls both of them, the liberal and the conservative, and says, hey, come, follow me. Under me, where there is division, you'll be made one. Where there is conflict, there'll be made one. Where there is mistrust, you'll be made one in community under me. I will be the place where I will take these places where you have made judgments in your own heart And they will become no more. We will live together as brothers and sisters. And you will follow me wherever I lead you. Jesus is the one that gives mercy to the adulteress. He's the one that looks at the disfigured and goes up to them and heals them. He doesn't turn and laugh. He doesn't try and not stare. He walks right up to them. And he makes a relationship with them. And it heals them. Jesus is always there coming towards people, going towards relationship, going towards loving and serving our neighbor. And guess what, guys? We are a people that have been shown great mercy. We are on the receiving end. We stand as a body, as a community right here that says, let's go serve Jesus. Let's go follow him into 